Um, Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for inspiring Luke to write down this truthful account of the life of Jesus. We thank you um, that you preserved it for us over the centuries. Father, we ask that by your spirit you would come and teach us this morning. We ask that you would use your word, Lord, to teach us and to reprove us and to correct us and to train us in righteousness. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I apologize for the way I'm sitting. This is not a professional way to teach. But I had a knee replacement a month ago, and I was tortured at physical therapy yesterday, so this is the best I can do. I'm determined that physical therapy is an invention of the devil. Okay, so who is Jesus? Remember that Luke wrote his gospel that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So today I'm going to start with a short review, because that's really the basis for chapter 6. Last week, we read about Jesus in his hometown in Nazareth. And after he had preached, the townspeople marveled and spoke well of him. But they said, is this not Joseph's son? I hope at that point your brain was screaming, no, this is not Joseph's son, because that's been Luke's main point up to this. In chapter 1, we had the testimony of the angel Gabriel to Mary and the words of Mary, Elizabeth, and Zacharias. This is the Son of God. In chapter 2, we had the testimony of the angels to the shepherds, the prophetic words of Simeon and Anna in the temple. This is the Son of God. In chapter 3, we had the testimony of John the Baptist. We had the Father's voice from heaven. And we had the genealogy saying, this is the Son of God. In chapter 4, we even had testimony from the devil and the demons saying, this is the Son of God. All these witnesses testified that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And then we've seen Jesus proving it with power and authority. I don't know if you noticed how many times the words power and authority were mentioned, but if you didn't, I hope you'll go back and take a look at it. In Luke 2, we saw Jesus as a 12-year-old boy sitting at the temple, and he was asking questions. It's easy to read that and think he was asking questions because he needed some information. That's probably not what that means. Jewish rabbis taught by asking questions. I think he was sitting at the temple teaching the teachers. In chapters 4 and 5, we saw Jesus' power and authority over the devil and his demons, over illness and injury, over nature in the miraculous catch of fish, and over men's hearts and minds in the calling of the fishermen and Levi. In all of this, Jesus has demonstrated that he is indeed the Son of God. And that was the problem. Because Jesus had proven himself to be the Son of God with power and authority, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, the ones all the people looked up to, were deeply offended. Jesus had publicly and deliberately challenged their power and authority. We saw it begin last week in chapter 5 when the crippled man was brought to Jesus for healing. And Jesus began by saying, your sins are forgiven. Well, the Pharisees asked the right question, who can forgive sins but God alone? 
but they refused to accept the answer Jesus gave them. Yes, God alone can forgive sins. And by healing this man, I'm showing you who I am. I am God the Son, and I have the power to forgive sins. So at this point, when we get to chapter 6, the Pharisees are watching him carefully, hoping to catch him in some kind of transgression. In chapter 6, we have the beginning of the Sabbath controversies, what is and what is not permissible on the Sabbath. Remember, the Sabbath was one of the main things that set the Jewish people apart from the rest of the world. So chapter 6 opens with Jesus and the disciples plucking and eating some grain on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees, who must have been following him around, why else would they be in a field, immediately accuse them of breaking the Sabbath. The basis of their accusation was not that this was illegal. What they were doing was permitted in the Mosaic Law. The basis of their accusation was not really that they were breaking the Sabbath because they had not violated God's Sabbath law. The basis of their accusation was that they had transgressed the rules. Over the years, many rules and traditions had grown up around God's law, around God's actual commandments. And it all started with the best of intentions. Legalism always starts that way. In an attempt to, to protect themselves from violating the law, the religious men had established hedges around the law so they couldn't transgress it. For example, to avoid taking the Lord's name in vain, they just wouldn't say the Lord's name at all. To prevent themselves from working on the Sabbath, they had identified 39 different categories of work, and each of those had dozens and dozens of examples that fit within that category. For example, ladies, on the Sabbath, you would not be permitted to pin up your hair or put your hair in a ponytail or pull your hair back because that was considered building. <laughs> so according to the Pharisees, Jesus and the disciples were guilty of four violations of their Sabbath rules. Reaping because they had plucked the grain, threshing because they had separated the grain from the chaff, winnowing because they discarded the chaff, and preparing food. None of these were an actual violation of God's Sabbath law to rest. So Jesus confronted the Pharisees. He reminded them of an incident in the life of David. They would have been very familiar with what happened here. The Lord's anointed king and his men were on the Lord's business, and the priest gave him food gave him the bread of the presence that was on the table in the Holy of Holies, which only the priests were allowed to eat. So the priest actually broke one of God's ceremonial commands in order to meet David's need. And he's not rebuked for it in the Old Testament. So Jesus is arguing from the greater to the lesser here. In David's case, one of God's ceremonial laws was broken. But here, there were no laws broken. We saw the Lord, here we see Jesus, the Lord's anointed, and his men on God's business, doing what's permissible. Only the traditions of the Pharisees were broken. And if that was not enough, in verse 5, Jesus says to, him, to them, 
the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Well, think about that for a minute. Who is Lord of the Sabbath? Well, who created the Sabbath? God, the Creator, created the Sabbath on the seventh day of creation. And when did the Sabbath become law for Israel? When God, the lawgiver, gave it to Moses on Mount Sinai as one of the Ten Commandments. So when Jesus said to the Pharisees, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, he was making a direct claim to be God. He was saying to them, this creator, this lawgiver, that's me, and I'm in charge of the Sabbath. And then Luke takes us directly to another Sabbath. We don't know how much time passed in between the two. Jesus was teaching at a synagogue and saw a man there with a withered hand. Luke tells us that the scribes and the Pharisees were watching him to see whether or not he would heal on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. And again, we see Jesus bumping up against their man-made tradition. According to their rules, it was only legal to heal on the Sabbath if it's a matter of life and death, which this clearly was not. But Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, knew that acts of compassion and mercy and restoration were perfectly compatible with resting on the Sabbath. And so the man was healed. And the self-appointed guardians of the Sabbath flew into a fury, breaking the Sabbath themselves to see how they might harm Jesus. Jesus asked them in verse 9, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? They wouldn't answer his question with words, but their actions certainly showed what was in their hearts. So this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, between God and man-made religion, would continue all the way up to the cross. So it became necessary for Jesus to appoint men who would carry on his work after the cross. And that's where Luke takes us next. Verse 12 tells us that Jesus spent all night in prayer to God the Father. And in the morning, he chose 12 men from among his disciples. We know from chapter 10 of Luke, there were at least 72 disciples. Probably there were more. So just as God had called out a people for himself, beginning with the 12 sons of Jacob, Jesus is calling out a people for himself, beginning with the 12 apostles. It's no accident that the 12 is there. These 12 men would receive special training and special gifting to carry on the work of the gospel. They would be his ambassadors. They would speak and act on his behalf. Well, 11 of them anyway. We know that Judas Iscariot had his own role to play, and he was selected even for that. So immediately after that, Luke takes us to the Sermon on the Plain. Is this the same sermon as Matthew's Sermon on the Mount? I don't think it is, but it might be. I'm not going to fight about it. (laughs) Jesus was a traveling preacher, and he probably preached in many different cities a lot of the same things. I do think that Jesus' sermon, as recorded by Matthew does help us to understand some of the things we see in Luke's version, especially what it means to be poor and hungry. Jesus began with these words, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, 
So this sermon is directed to Jesus' disciples. A disciple is a learner, one who follows a teacher, and it was addressed to all of Jesus' followers who were there that day. But it's also directed to us because we are disciples. So this is specifically for us who are disciples. In this sermon, Jesus is explaining to his disciples the values of the kingdom of God, values that are upside down from the world's values, values that are upside down from the Pharisees' values. And these encounters that he's had with the Pharisees up to this point color the sermon. Now, I'm not going to discuss a lot of the sermon because there isn't time. I hope you discussed it in your small groups. In verses 20 to 26, Jesus pronounces blessings on those who are needy and woes on those who are self-satisfied. You can immediately see the contrast between what Jesus values in his disciples and what the Pharisees valued. In 27 to 36, he tells us about love, to love even our enemies. There are several words for love in the Greek language. There's storge, which is family love. There's phileo, which is love between friends. There's eros, which is love between a man and a woman. All these kinds of love have to do with feelings and mutual attachments. The love Jesus talks about is different. He's talking about agape love. It's not a feeling, it's a choice. It's the kind of love that God has shown for us when we were still sinners and enemies. Not because he could get anything from us, but because he chose to love us. And agape love is to be one of the defining characteristics of Jesus' disciples. And he tells us what it will look like in our lives. We'll do good for our enemies. We'll speak well to them and of them and we'll pray for them. We'll be willing to be taken advantage of by them. We'll do to them what we wish they would do to us, and we will show them mercy. In verse 37 through 42, Jesus warns about judging others. Judge not, the one Bible verse every non-Christian knows. (laughs) Does that mean we can never make a judgment? Absolutely not. We're called to judge things. The New Testament calls us to judge and identify and remove false teachers. The New Testament calls us to judge those within the church who are living in sinful lifestyles. We can't present the gospel without calling sin, sin, and that's a judgment. Jesus is warning here about judgment that is condemning and self-righteous and hypocritical. Judgment needs to start with ourselves. The Pharisees were condemning and self-righteous and hypocritical. They had a kind of judgment that was not meant to do good for others, not meant to bring them to a better place, to restore them. And that's the kind of judgment Jesus is condemning here. So in verses 43 to the end of the chapter, Luke tells us two stories about how true disciples will live. Let's read 43 through 45. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. 
The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. This is a simple illustration. You can't get figs from thorn bushes. Figs only come from fig trees. Grapes only come from grapevines. No matter how hard a bramble tries, it can't produce even one grape. Fruit is the product of what the tree is at its core. In the same way, Jesus was saying, the righteousness that he requires is not an external matter. It's not a matter of hand washings and Sabbath rules, as the Pharisees believed, but it's a matter of the heart. A man whose heart is right with God at its core will both desire and produce good fruit in the same way that a grapevine produces grapes. A tree doesn't need to strain to produce fruit. It just happens naturally. The same will be true in the life of a disciple. So let's finish up by reading the last verses, 46 to 49. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because the house had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of the house was great. So Jesus begins the last story in this sermon with a question. Why do you say to me, Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? The repetition of a name in Hebrew is meant to suggest intimacy. So Jesus is talking about people who either think they have or pretend to have an intimate relationship with him but who will not do what he tells them. Have you ever seen the movie The Sorcerer's Apprentice? Not the Mickey Mouse Disney one, but the one with Nicolas Cage. So in this movie, Nicolas Cage is a sorcerer, and he takes on this young man as an apprentice. And the young man is continually messing up. He doesn't do what the sorcerer tells him to do. He'll either just not do it, or he'll partly do it, or he'll mix his own ideas in with the sorcerer's ideas and it just never comes out right. And finally, there's a point in the movie where the sorcerer has had enough, and he looks at his apprentice, and the way it's filmed is Nicolas Cage looks directly into the camera, so he's making eye contact with you. And he says to to the apprentice, I'm not your mentor, I'm your master. (laughs) And it just hit me, because that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. It reminded me of these verses. Why do I call Jesus Lord, Lord? Why do I call him Master, Master? Because that's what Lord means. And not do what he's telling me to do. He's not my mentor. He's not giving me good advice. He's my master. He's God, the creator, and the lawgiver. He has every right to demand and expect my obedience. And especially when my obedience is what's best for me and the people around me. So how can I be better at obedience? And I think that's what Jesus is talking about in this last story here. 
He tells us about the man who dug deep and laid his foundation on the rock. Well, the rock on which he built obviously is God. The Bible refers to God as the rock and Jesus as the foundation. The man in Luke's version of this story didn't merely choose to build on the rock rather than on the sand, like he did in Matthew's version. In Luke's version, he had to dig deep, and I think that's the key words to this story. He had to dig deep to get to the rock. Digging deep is hard work and time-consuming. Have you ever planted a tree? It is hard work and time-consuming. What Jesus is talking about here is discipleship. Discipleship is hard work and time-consuming. Digging deep involves studying God's word, understanding scripture, and really getting to know yourself and your God through his word. Digging deep involves removing all those bits that don't belong, the tree roots and the hard clay and the rocks, all those sins and sinful desires that get in the way. Digging deep involves prayer, asking God to reveal to you the things you need to know and to help you both to desire and to do obedience. Digging deep involves commitment to growth and the allotment of time and effort so that growth can occur. Digging deep involves sacrifice. And maybe most of all, digging deep depends on relying on God, who has promised to complete that which he's begun in you. He hasn't left you on your own to do it by yourself. He's given you everything that you need for life and godliness. So ladies, I want to encourage you like this man to dig deep. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we know it would please you and would be good for us for our souls and the souls of those around us if we would obey. Lord, please open our eyes to see what you're commanding us. Open our minds to understand what you're saying. Open our hearts to desire the things you want for us and open our wills to obey. Father, we thank you for the firm foundation you've given us in Jesus Christ, who holds us fast in this life and who will bring us safely through the judgment. And we pray this in his name. Amen.